Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. It's my privilege at this time to uh, ask our brother Billy Scott to come forward. He's an elder of the chapel, so I'm sure the Lord has laid a good message on his heart and will be blessed by it. Brother Billy? Smart comment, just since you saw the title, huh? <laughs> Very good, Andrew. Well, good morning. They're happy to have you and happy to have a chance to, to spend some time in God's Word this morning. And uh, the title to the message, now let's see, Andy, let me get this on here. And, uh, well, you can already kind of see what's going on there, right? That's right. Right. Twisting God's arm. Now, so I wasn't twisting God's arm. I was only twisting Alexis and Chelsea's arm. <clears throat> and there's a bit difference. But the, uh, the idea of twisting somebody's arm forcing them to do something that they're not inclined to do. The phrase is generally used when you're kind of manipulating the circumstances to get somebody to do something um, they weren't really in favor of. And we do it all the time. I did it today. I didn't, you know, and I said, can you, right? Can you do that? And uh, thankfully, they were prepared. They sang yesterday at the ladies' retreat. It wasn't as though I had to go get guitars and come back. Um, and, you know, you could probably think of examples in your own life where you have asked someone to do something that they were not inclined to do. One that had happened just this last week, but it's happened two years. You know, you could probably think of your own, but uh, hey, wait up. Wait up. Wait for me. So, like, if I'm going to a meeting, I was going to a meeting this past week, and the person who called the meeting, i.e. my boss, had just expressed last week how it really gets under her skin when we're not on time. And when a colleague said to me, can you do such and such? I said, no. And I kept walking because I thought, no, I know what you're saying. It looks better when two of us walk in together late. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to do that, you know. And, uh, and if you, sometimes when you think about it, um, there are things that we do. But if you, it's not intentional. But if you looked at it carefully, you'd realize there's a selfish motive behind when we ask people to do stuff like that. So the question is, can we twist God's arm? Well, I'm not saying can we infringe on the sovereign will of God that's been decreed from all eternity. But I do think the answer to that is, yes, there are times that we can ask God uh, for things that are not in His perfect will, and we could continue to ask until He finally says that He will. We selfishly force God into allowing us to do or have what he knows is not best for us. Christians have been known to beg for experiences or other things that he doesn't desire to give, but sometimes he does give, and he's not pleased with it. We'll insist it sometimes without saying it, not thy will, but mine be done. I have a, a, a friend, a friend of the family, uh, their, their family for years, they have two children, they're older than me, but I remember distinctly that the, the girl telling me the story, uh, she wanted so badly to be married and um, had a guy that was interested and she you know, prayed for and she had a guy and she thought this is the guy and her family and others said, I don't, I don't think this is that good, but she was so intent on getting married that she did. She was counseled beforehand that there are a lot worse things in life than being single. She told me that that was told to her. She said, Billy, I found out what it is. 
I'm now divorced. It was about a year into the marriage. She realized she was outside of God's will, and it, it ended up not being what she thought it would be. She rushed ahead. The good, the good ending that she did eventually remarried and is still married. But sometimes we beg and we push and we shove, and we get to the point where God grants things. He did so uh, with Israel long ago. He gave them, we read in Psalm, the request. He gave them their request but sent leanness into their soul. So what we would want to do this morning, we want to look at a few examples in the Old Testament that we can see where God was asked for something and granted it, but it wasn't always with a good result. There are a couple of verses that come to mind. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he's talking about the uh, children of Israel coming out of uh, Egypt and on their way to Canaan. And Paul writes in chapter 10, verse 11, while I'm looking that one up, someone else look up Romans 15, 4. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says, Now all these happened, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. What does Romans 15, 4 say? For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Okay. So these are things written in the Old Testament. We can look at them. They're written for our admonition. It's not necessarily written to us. Don Pell would usually say this. It's, not everything is written to us, but everything's written for us. There are things that are written to the children of Israel. I'm not Jewish by birth, and so that would not necessarily be to me, but I can glean from it. And we're going to look at some things that cliche or the saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, comes to mind. Some things that we could see. We have four examples up there. We're going to try to take time to look at each one. The first is that, that uh, account that Mike read in Numbers. We won't, you can, if you've got your finger there, that's fine, in Numbers 11. Uh, but it's the case where they're coming out of uh, Egypt. They just left Sinai. As a matter of fact, in chapter 10, and in verse 11 of Numbers, we see it says, Now it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month in the second year that the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle testimony, and they're about to set out. So they've been out for uh, over a year. They're in their second year, and they head out from Mount Sinai. They're heading to Canaan. And in, and, and in verse 38 of... Uh, Chapter 10, verse 38, no, I have 38, can't be 38. Um, 36? All right. Anyways, it's, it's only the third day. It's, it's only been three days since they've headed out, um, since they've headed out uh, from Mount Sinai. And we find that, as Mike was reading, that the people, in verse 1, they began to complain. And they complained so much that it displeased the Lord, and there was judgment from God on the outskirts of the camp. And then we see down in verse number uh, four, it says, And the mixed multitude who are among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? Now you might wonder, who is this referring to? It says the mixed 
multitude. You remember that the uh, descendants of Jacob went down to Egypt to avoid a famine. And they were down in Egypt for about 400 years. And they cried because the, ta- the, uh, the burden of the taskmasters was heavy upon them. And God answered their prayer to bring them out. And when they came out, in Exodus chapter 12, we read Exodus 12 and 38. A mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds and great deal of livestock. So these were not sons of Jacob. Uh, they may have been you know, married, somebody locally. The suggestion was they were just others, uh, descendants of Shem that were in that uh, Nile uh, area that were uh, in Egypt as well. We don't know that they were uh, under the same burden that the, uh, the Jews were under. But they came out, the mixed multitude came out when the children of Israel left Egypt. And it says they were the ones in verse 4 who were yielding to intense craving. But then it says the children of Israel also wept. And their greed, they began to say, who will give us meat to eat? Now God had provided. God had provided something for them to eat. But they wanted something else. We read again down in verse number 20. It says... um, uh, as, as the account goes, God promised to give them meat to eat so much so, he said, for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you've despised the Lord who is among you and have wept over him saying, why did we ever come out of Egypt? Isn't that something? Years, not too long before that, they cried to the Lord because of the burden they were under and God miraculously delivered them. He sent Moses to be his servant to go before Pharaoh and to bring them out. But when they came out, they decided, I don't want this. Why did we come out? You know what I want? I want meat. They, re- they had a good memory about certain things. It was called selective memory. Do you remember the leeks and the onions and the fish we ate? Wasn't that great? If I had been there, I, th- I would have thrown in, in the scourging and the, you know, the, the whipping and the long hours, and then they stopped giving us straw for the brick. Do you remember that? Verse number 32, it says, And the people stayed up that night all all night, and the next day and gathered the quail. This is what God had sent. And he who gathered the least gathered ten omers, and they spread them out for themselves around the camp. But when the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, God's wrath was aroused against them, and the Lord struck them with a very great plague. So we see that their ingratitude, their selfish indulgence, it was evidence that they were discontent and they twisted God's arm by asking for what they did. Now, the practical application, there's a few we can draw from, but the first one is just in the very first verse of the chapter. It says, when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. It's a plain statement, and yet sometimes we find ourselves getting caught up in it. We say, complained about a situation. We're not happy with a certain thing. And we begin to complain. Complaining, clearly it says there, it displeases the Lord. Um, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, there's a verse I'll read there. It says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be content with what you have. 
They had what they needed. They wanted something more. There was an illustration given. See if I can find it here. Here we go. Um, it's a, of an ancient Persian legend. It talks about a wealthy man by the name of Al-Hafed who owned a large farm. One evening, a visitor related to him tales of fabulous amounts of diamonds that could be found in other parts of the world. He described the great riches they could bring him. The vision of all this wealth made Hafid feel poor by comparison. So, instead of caring for his own prosperous farm, he sold it and set out to find these treasures. But the search proved to be fruitless. Finally, penniless and in despair, he committed suicide by jumping into the sea. Meanwhile, the man who had purchased the farm noticed one day the glint of an unusual stone in a shallow stream on the property. He reached into the water, and to his amazement, he pulled out a huge diamond. Later, when working in his garden, he uncovered many more of the valuable gems. Poor Al-Hafed, had he spent his life, or sorry, he had spent his life traveling to distant lands, seeking jewels, when on the farm he had left behind were all the precious stones his heart's heart could ever have desired. Twisted God's arm. The next was a... Um, in Numbers chapter 32, this is the account now. They've already gone through the desert. They're on their way to the promised land. I won't take time to read all the verses, but we'll just uh, paraphrase. <clears throat> they've come to the edge, or just not to the edge of the Jordan, but they've come to the east side of the um, Jordan River. And Reuben, Gad, and some of the tribe of Manasseh noticed as they looked around it says in verse um, for the country which the lord defeated before the congregation of israel is a land for livestock and your servants have livestock so they go to moses and they say and um you know if we found favor in your sight verse five let this land be given to your servants as a possession don't take us over the jordan in verse 6, Moses replies, Well, shall that your brethren go to war while we sit here? That land, by the way, was won by going to war with the Midianites, and it probably was the first major war they came into. So they had a taste for it at this point. Um, and Moses says, Listen, are you going to settle here and have the rest of the, the, your, your brethren go across? Verse 7, he says, Why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over to the land which the Lord has given them? You're going to discourage those. Here's the plan. We told you all along, God's plan. We're going to the promised land. We're going to get to the Jordan River. We're going to cross in, and we'll be in the land of Canaan. But now you think because the ground over here looks better, I want to do this. And they begin to twist God, well, twist Moses' arm, and eventually twisting God's arm. And Moses tells him, he says, your fathers did the same thing when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea. Remember when they sent out the 12 spies? Ten were bad, two were good. He sent them up. They came back with the bad report, and God was so displeased. What happened? Forty years they wandered in the wilderness until that whole generation died off. And he brings this up to him. He, he, he goes to that account, and then he says, um, down in verse number 14, And look, you have risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will once again leave them in the wilderness and you will destroy all these people. They were close, but Moses pointed out, if you're going to be disobedient, don't think God won't do the same thing with your generation. 
turn you around and have you wander till all you adults have died and only the children that are born are going to be uh, ones going into the promised land. So we see that they wanted something that God didn't have for them. And they tried to strike a bargain after Moses said it was a bad idea. After verse 15, they should have said, you know what? You're right. We're Bad idea. Instead, they said, well, well, what about this? What if we build sheepfolds and something for our children and wives to stand? Then we'll go across the Jordan and we'll fight the battles until everyone's settled. How about that, Moses? It's interesting. They didn't say, let's, let us pause and pray and let's ask God. Even Moses himself, when he granted the, 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 the request, he listened to their, their uh, proposition and he granted it for them. And they ended up, instead of doing what God had expressly wanted, they stayed on the other side of the Jordan. If you look through verses 20 through 23, when they give their plan, there's five times the word if occurs and three times the word but occurs. What if, if, if this and, and but that... And they had to try to come up with something. And they twisted, twisted the whole situation so it would come to their advantage. But you know, it had some bad fallout. In Joshua 22, when they uh, finished the conquering of the land, if you recall, the two and a half tribes went back to the east side of the Jordan. And what did they set up over there? Do you remember? What was it? It's an altar. It's the set of an altar. And it almost civil war almost broke out because... Joshua and the rest of the tribes thought that they were going to start to worship another god. And they consider them still, though they're on this side of the river, to be one, one group. We don't want to fall under God's judgment. Rather than do that, they were ready to go to war over it. Now, it did settle once they sent representatives and they figured it out. Uh, but it almost caused civil war. And another bad fallout. When the, uh, the northern tribes fell to Assyria, which direction did Assyria come from? the east, who were the first tribes to go into captivity? Reuben, Gad, and a half-tribe of Manasseh. There's bad fallout that follows when we twist God's arm. Let me squeeze in another illustration here. Eighth-century Emperor Charlemagne wanted to have a magnificent bell cast for the church he had built. An artist named Tancho was employed to make it, and he was furnished at his own request with great quantity of copper and 100 pounds of silver for the purpose. He kept the silver for his own personal use, however, and used highly purified tin instead. When the work was completed, he presented the bell to the emperor <laughs> who had it suspended in the church tower. But the people were unable to ring it, so Tancho himself was called in to help. And he pulled so hard to make it ring, the clapper fell down and killed him. Let's see. His sin found him out. He did something that was not in the plan, and there was a bad fallout from it. The uh, next illustration or from the Old Testament is the account of the children of Israel when they asked Samuel to give them a king. It's a familiar story. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Again, we won't take time to read all of the verses, but they're there if you'd like to look them up. Up until this point, God ruled the nation. He had somebody that he had uh, spoke through. In this case, it was Samuel. But it says in verse uh, number three that the, uh, as the 
Uh, elders of the land came. They said uh, to Elijah, you know, your sons don't walk in your way. They turn aside. So they came, uh, they turned aside to dishonest gain, took bribes, perverted justice. So they came to Samuel in verse number uh, four, and they said to him in verse five, look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Samuel was displeased when they said, give us a king to judge us. So he asked the Lord, and the Lord said, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. It was a unique situation. The nation of Israel is what we would call a theocracy. God ruled. Now, God ruled through, through and the most recent would be the prophet Samuel. But they didn't want that. They wanted something different. God's, not God's plan, at least not then. There was, there was allowance given for a king. But they wanted a king, and not only that, they rejected God and his plan. And there were, uh, Samuel goes on to explain to him, starting in verse 10, what will be um, the behavior of the king who will reign over you. It says, verse 11. And he talks about the taking of the sons as servants and the daughters for this, requiring a tenth of, your, uh, of your, what you make, uh, the heavy taxation that will follow. He didn't include this, but there was evil leadership with a human king, which eventually led to the destruction of the nation and the captivity of the northern tribes and, again, of the southern tribes. So although sometimes we get our own way, twisting God's arm never results in the full blessing of God. We'll take time for one more. That is going to be life instead of death. Now you say, that's a kind of a funny one to, to talk about. Who wants death over life? Well, let's look at the story in 2 Kings. In 2 Kings chapter 20. And it's the story of King Hezekiah. Hezekiah was about the 12th or so king of Judah. You recall that, that when the people asked for a king, Saul was anointed as king. And then David succeeded Saul, and then Saul's son Samuel, sorry, Solomon succeeded David. And the, king, the, the, the country was united in those three kings. But after Solomon, we got to a divided kingdom where the northern tribes, they didn't want the son of Solomon, Rehoboam, because of all the heavy taxation and all the things that Samuel had warned him about was upon them. They didn't like that idea. And they, they split off and they named Jeroboam, is their king. And you know, of the 19 kings of the northern tribes, not one was good. You look at the biblical account, 19, not one good. About eight in the south of the 20 kings, it's said of that they followed after the Lord. Uh, and Sam, uh, Hezekiah would have been down in the latter half of that list of kings. And so here we see in uh, chapter 20, uh, 1 Kings, uh, Hezekiah is sick, and he's near death, and Isaiah is sent to him. It says, and Isaiah the prophet went to him and said, thus says the Lord. So he had a message from God, set your house in order, you shall die and not live. You know, today, that would probably strike us if that were the case, but it might be kind of to our advantage if, you know, the Lord just tells us flat out, this is your day, it's coming up right now. We don't know the day of our death, but he told Hezekiah, you're not going to get over this. This case is going to take your life. And instead of saying, well, 
God's will be done, which he does say later, after he gets his 15 years of life and he's told what's going to happen after he's dead. Oh, God, God's will be done now. Now that you got what you twisted his arm and got what you wanted. But it says he, in verse number three, he wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. And um, the bitterness is an indication that our attitude towards God is not the greatest. And uh, Moses, or the Lord tells Isaiah in verse number uh, four, it says, It happened before Isaiah had gone out into the middle court, middle court that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of your, David, your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, surely I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord. Now it says he was sick and near death in verse number one. So he's giving him a time period. Within three days, you're going to go up to the house of the Lord and to worship. He said, I will add in verse six days to your, uh, to your days, 15 years. And furthermore, he says, I'm going to deliver this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, which you keep reading in the history of Israel. You'll see that Sennacherib and the armies of Assyria were miraculously defeated, not by Judah's mighty army, but by Judah's mighty God. And he said, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. So he got the 15 years that he wanted. And then he says, can I have a sign? Can I have a sign? Weak faith and twist, arm twisting usually go hand in hand. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 2 says there's a time to live and a time to die. God had told him it was his time, but he, uh, he asked for more. Demanding for us or others to live may be twisting God's arm. <clears throat> Sometimes we do pray, particularly as we think of the uh, things that have gone on lately. I struck up a conversation with a brother at family camp about this with the COVID virus and how uh, people have been taken uh, home to be with the Lord. And any time death comes, it's, it's a discouragement to the saints because it's a loss for us, but it's heaven's gain. And... Uh, we begin to talk about whether or not it's actually right to ask God to please spare so-and-so's life. Am I twisting his arm? Or, could, or maybe I should say, Lord, if it's your will, yes. we ask that you'll heal and bring him out of this. Let God's will be done. It's, in, our, in our natural state, we sometimes ask for things uh, that, that are not in God's will. He, the, uh, the brother I was talking to gave me a, a story. He said, I do not know if it's true but I will share it with you because he's uh, from Brazil. He said there was a man, a story told him of a man standing outside of a strip joint where his daughter was the, the star attraction. And he said that when his daughter was 12 years old, she was on death's bed and he begged and begged and begged God to preserve her. And miraculously, she was given life. In her later teen years, she turned from the Lord and he said, this is where she ended up. Oh, that she were taken by the Lord when she were 12. And so he, the point being, you know, he asked for something that he wanted that he thought was the best, twisted God's arm, got what he wanted, and realized it wasn't the best. We don't know. We don't know God's will. We can see ourselves, if you look at each of the stories, uh, you can maybe see yourself in any of these areas of discontent and arm twisting. And whether you actually verbalize it, um, 
in a direct prayer, it doesn't minimize the fact or the sins of complaining and arm twisting that we go through. So my encouragement or exhortation this morning is to resist our natural tendency to push our request to the stage of twisting God's arm. We instead ask you to follow the model of Christ, which is not my will, but thine be done. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for the Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank you that we have a Savior in him. We thank you, Father, for the Spirit that leads and directs. And we thank you, Father, that you are, your will, Father, as it's revealed to us, is that which we should follow, the plan that's best. We know the plans that you have for us are good and not evil. We don't know the future, Father. We, we, we Sometimes we, uh, uh, we're fearful of the steps ahead because we don't know what may turn out. Pardon us, Lord, for asking in our human weakness for things that are not in your plan. Help us to have the wisdom to know when to yield, Father, to, to not ask for things that are not a part of your plan and the grace to accept your will in our lives. We just ask these things as we part today in our Savior's name. Amen.